Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And it's Saturday, time to go into the vault. And this time, with us in the dark, is the ultimate wintertime bad boy, the greatest goat of all time. I guess the greatest goat man of all time, Der Krampus. That's right. Uh, this worked out perfectly because we put this episode out last year on Krampus Knocked. And uh, now uh, we, we have a, a slot for a vault episode on Krampus Knocked. So we are, we are unleashing the bestial hordes once again. Now, when did this episode originally come out? Originally published uh, 12-5, 2019. And uh, if the calendar speaks true, today is 12-5, 2020. So it's perfect. Let's get in the basket. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And it's Krampus Night, isn't it? That's right. Today is, or tonight rather, is Krampusnacht, uh, the, the night during which the beast of Christmas comes down from the mountains and terrorizes alpine towns around the world, <laughs> right? Uh, it's, so given that this episode falls on Krampusnacht, we mm-hmm. realized we had a, a solemn duty, a solemn holiday duty to explore uh, Krampus in depth. Man, I think Krampus just took a walk through our kitchen because I, I just went through there and there was such a reek. There was like a, 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 a waft of aged shrimp all throughout the microwave area. Does Krampus smell? Uh, you know, I, I would imagine he would smell somewhat of sulfur and rot. Yeah, it, I mean, one would think, or, or certainly the hides would have a, a dankness to them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, but the smell is often overlooked because generally it's more, it's, it's generally thought of as a more visual spectacle, uh, certainly for those of us far away from the alpine regions that, mm-hmm. uh, that either have to uh, uh, make do with some facsimile of uh, Krampus rites in our own cities or simply have to make do with, with footage and, uh, and images and illustrations of what these rites consist of. Now, Krampus was really having a moment like a couple years ago, I think, like suddenly interest in this creature surged uh, and I feel like it's it's calmed down enough now that we that we can properly tackle it yeah but I think the good news is that it, I think it is calmed down to like a steady infection of, uh, <laughs> of Western civilization uh, beyond the Alpine regions you know uh-huh. certainly here in the United States like Krampus uh, has you know surged infected the holiday host and now I think we can say Krampus is part of our our holiday traditions here in the United States now another thing is you said you were going to be leaning into the holidays this year, and man, you have been. But we, we do promise it's not going to be all Christmas stuff the rest of the year. It was just that you saw that it was coming out on Krampusnacht, and we, we couldn't do but go to the horns. Exactly. So let's talk a little more about Krampus, because some of you may not actually be familiar with Krampus, or you might not have uh, you know, as uh, you know, robust an understanding as, as other folks out there. So the short version, of course, is that Krampus is an alpine holiday monster used as negative reinforcement, a threat of punishment for bad behavior uh, against children. He is the bad cop to St. Nicholas's good cop. He is uh, the stick, whereas St. Nicholas is the carrot. Though much more directly so than St. Nicholas. Nicholas 
being the carrot because the child doesn't actually want to see St. Nicholas in their house. That would perhaps be traumatic. Right. Uh, you want the treats and the goodies and the presents that St. Nicholas brings. Uh, so the St. Nicholas is like an indirect giver of the carrot. Krampus is himself quite the stick. Right. And, and But he is something you wish to avoid. And yeah. that, that's the general idea. Krampus is what happens to the bad children. You, uh, young one, are not one of the bad children, are you? Uh, well, well, wait, so what exactly does Krampus do to the bad children? Well, uh, so so it, it varies. I mean, the basic idea is that Krampus is going to come. Uh, and Krampus, I'll go ahead and describe Krampus for everyone mm-hmm. who isn't familiar. Uh, though, again, this is a situation where the exact incarnation of Krampus is going to drift a little bit, and we're uh, going to discuss the, the, the whys of that in a bit. A little but, bit baphomet Yeah, a, a goat-like beast man, kind of a satyr, kind of a pan figure, uh, kind of a demon, like a furry, shaggy, Alpine demon from the cold mountain uh, wilderness mm. comes down. Uh, you know, he's covered in bells. Uh, has a basket on it, on his back. Mm. Has uh, switches. Uh, may bring coal as well. Sometimes it's shown to have like a big lolling, uh, you know, giraffe-like tongue. Mm. And basically, he's going to come and scare the bad children, whip the bad children with his switches, and if you are particularly bad, throw you into his basket and take you with him back uh, to the wilderness to either eat you out there maybe or maybe take you to hell is is that sometimes part of it uh yeah i think again the, ex- the exact details are going to vary uh sometimes i wonder if it's like a because clearly krampus has coal perhaps he needs the children to work in the coal mine oh okay but that's just me that's my my possible twist on it now you're probably wondering you know where does this idea come from we know that it, it definitely seems to originate in the alpine regions of europe but it's unsure if it's truly a pre-Christian pagan tradition. Um, some people say that it is, uh, though it undoubtedly invokes pre-Christian pagan ideas and images, mm-hmm. um, you know, regardless of where it's actually or when it's actually emerging. But at heart, he's a he's just a general bogey, right? The embodiment of negative reinforcement of cultural norms in children, and perhaps going back to our discussion of uh, Jenny Greenteeth, uh, the, uh, the 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 bogey that is used to warn children away from from still waters that are dangerous. Uh, perhaps Krampus is an embodiment of uh, you know the general message that bad things will happen to you if you do not take seriously the rules and advice that your parents and your elders present you with. Mm-hmm. So while yes. Misbehaving will not actually result in foul beastmen venturing down from the mountains and dragging you away to some horrific fate. But misbehaving could result in bodily harm, and certainly the potential for violent mistreatment by others is, is you know, is possible in certain circumstances. Either way, Krampus is an embodiment of fear in a holiday that is often reduced to just a notion of pure joy, right? Mm-hmm. Especially in the United States traditionally. Uh, but his spirit is is certainly of the winter from which our holiday tradition emerge. Uh, you know, he is the, the the darkness of the holidays that is ultimately essential to to winter um, rites and winter belief systems that you find in cultures around the world. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing that I think is an interesting difference is that like whether or not there's really a St. Nicholas to bring you presents, uh, children will 
often end up with presents on Christmas morning with the implication that they have come from St. Nicholas. But uh, nobody ever actually gets carried <laughs> off by Krampus. Yeah. Um, you know, you'll you, you, one of the big things here is you have Krampus parades, uh, traditional Krampus parades in uh, Alpine areas uh, in which people dressed in the Krampus costumes will parade through the streets and, um, and scare children. Mm-hmm. Though certainly nowadays they are not uh, – they're generally not permitted to touch the children or to actually strike the children with sticks, Good. much less drag them away. Uh, but in previous uh, decades, uh, you know, I imagine they perhaps had a little more leeway. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I guess so. But either way, yes, the idea is that Krampus is a, a performance. It is a, is a folk festival performance in which people dress up as the monster and then the monsters parade through the streets. Uh, and in this, I, we, you know, it, it touches on so many other different folk traditions. There's something about Krampus that seems to embody just a, like it just checks off so many boxes for folk traditions uh, that you find throughout Europe, but also in around the world. You know, like the, the making of uh, bread totems that resemble Krampus, uh, Krampus wearing the um, the bells, bells being objects that are typically used uh, in folk traditions to warn off evil spirits, mm-hmm. uh, Krampus as being a kind of horned god. God is another uh, uh, thing that is often brought up, uh, uh, you know, and, and of course there are many versions of uh, horned gods and horned beings in various religions and myth cycles, uh, you know, tied, uh, you know, particularly with the horned god to the unpredictable nature of the hunt. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he, he really, you know, stands, uh, you know, on this kind of nexus of so many different uh, uh, ideas uh, like it's easy to just go nuts chasing Krampus through the uh, you know through the centuries of uh, of, of human you know folk history. Well, he's also just a, a classic hybrid monster. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, at heart, he is kind of part part man, part goat. <laughs> yeah. I guess you'd say, but part sheep, maybe part uh, you know part beast. And in that, like, he ties into some of our, our oldest um, you know magical ideas. Ideas. A hybridity is key to monstrosity, and what is thought to be the first monster in the human imagination is none other than the uh, what the the the, uh, the Lowenmensch figurine from about thirty five to forty thousand years ago. Right. Well, the the first that we have physical evidence yes. of, because mm-hmm. yeah, as we talked about in our episode about the first monster, you can't know what the first monster was, but this seems to be like the earliest one where there's a physical record of the monster. Yeah, and we did a whole episode on that, talking about like you know how, you know certainly how this uh, example was found. And what uh, experts have thought about it, and how it ties into just how how our minds work, like bringing two uh, different ideas together into a new idea, and what this new idea encompasses. Totally. So, uh, what happens on Krampusnacht? Well, uh, Krampusnacht is the eve of the feast of Saint Nicholas. Uh, it occurs uh, every December fifth, and so Krampus descends from the mountain, terrorizes the children, drags the worst of them away uh, in that foul wicker basket covered in bells. Uh, sometimes he he hands out coal or rootin bundles of sticks, uh, which is interesting. The, the 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 bundles of sticks are sometimes also ma- musical instruments, of course, because they can use be used uh, with a percussion instrument. Um, but uh, you know, this is the uh, overall just a, a parade in which the, there is this threat of greater beatings or abduction if you do not behave yourselves. And um, 
And uh, this is another thing, like the Krampus parade through the streets also has this kind of unruly atmosphere to it that ties in with a lot of parade traditions that involve masks and, uh, you know, bestial uh, guises that people take on. Mm-hmm. And this, uh, you know, so uh, again, it, it, it runs uh, uh, parallel to so many different things in human culture. Well, it's one of the great ironies in the belief in demons and devils that have haunted mm-hmm. us throughout the centuries, which is that they are often used precisely to enforce order, like orderly behavior among children, and yet they are themselves figures of chaos. Yeah. It's like this unruly, unpredictable, wild kind of thing will be there to punish you if you break the rules. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that? I don't know. That, that's interesting to me. Yeah, we'll certainly get into the psychology of this more uh, in the, the, the later portion of the episode. Uh, as for the name, uh, Krampus comes from Krampen, which means claw in German, mm-hmm. so which has a, you know, a nice nasty connotation to it like this is the claw the claw man <laughs> um, oh, let's see goodness where do you even even go from there so we talked about uh, Krampus Com- Krampus comes to town Krampus parades through the streets mm-hmm. uh, or the the Krampus the Krampi you know multiple Kramp- Krampuses some of these uh, especially these these modern uh, Krampus parades, you're talking like 400 Krampuses parading through the streets. They're quite a festival. Sometimes there's fire. Uh, you know, sometimes the costumes are a little more modern, but other times they put a strong emphasis on maintaining uh, uh, traditional originality, wooden masks, actual, um, uh, you know, goat and sheepskins, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So the basic idea is that, okay, Krampus either incorporates pagan ideas or emerges from pagan ideas or even is uh, ultimately rooted in pre-Christian pagan traditions. Mm. Uh, but then St. Nicholas does come along, around. Uh, so this is the, the solemn Catholic uh, precursor to the sort of jolly modern Santa Claus that most of us grew up with. And uh, St. Nick gained popularity among German-speaking people during the 11th century. Now, the story of St. Nicholas is itself full of uh, fascinating diversions. Yes. Like, there's a great story where St. Nicholas... I believe uh, he comes across a place where an evil innkeeper or somebody like that has murdered some young boys and then uh, then St. Nicholas uh, murdered them, chopped them up and pickled them. And then St. Nicholas resurrects the, the chopped up pickled boys. Uh, and I, I guess the innkeeper is somehow punished. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and St. Nicholas is this the rather different figure from, from modern Santa Claus too in that he is – I mean he's essentially like a, a former uh, bishop of, of what is now Turkey. Yeah, I think and, so. Yeah, he is – and he's this dour individual. So he's not really jolly. I guess he's jolly in comparison to the beast man Krampus. Uh, but it, it, he's not quite Santa Claus. That's for sure. He's more like a, a Christmas sorrow. On. <laughs> oh, kind of. I don't know. I, I think he's. Yeah, yeah. I guess he is kind of. He yeah. is kind of. Yeah. Anyway, in the centuries to follow, Krampus becomes an essential part of these traditions. You have Krampus and you have Saint Nick. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, you have Krampus not uh, ahead of the coming of Saint Nicholas, and uh, and this just becomes uh, you know just a popular part of the holiday. And at times, it actually gets a little too popular uh, for some people. So Krampus has always been just as Krampus is this this darkness to the light uh, compared to the light of St. Nicholas. Uh, you know, Krampus even today is, I think, sometimes seen as 
kind of a, an enemy of, of Christmas. Well, you know, the, the same way uh, they say, like, it's hard to make an anti-war movie because war is inherently thrilling. It mm-hmm. might be hard to make an anti-Satan, like, demon character because demon characters are inherently kind of fun to act out. Yeah. Uh, and so, like, there's always the risk that people might be having a little too much fun uh, acting out uh, their Krampus roles, and thus the church might need to bring the hammer down. That's right. So, uh, you know, the Catholic uh, Church attempted to ban these festivals in the 17th and 18th centuries, but they weren't able to do so. Uh, And then uh, before Nazi Germany's 1938 invasion of Austria, uh, Catholic um, uh, Austro-Fascists briefly held power and is reported in a 1945 New York Times article titled uh, Krampus Disliked in Fascist Austria. Uh, (laughs) They pointed out that that at at the time, uh, the, the, the people in power saw Krampus as a demonic, unruly, and potentially communist usurper of Christian traditions. Uh, I guess that fits. Yeah. So basically, though, Krampus, according to this article, Krampus postcards and candies, you know, had always been popular, but but they had they had become so popular that Krampus had virtually taken over uh, from Santa. Like he was he was becoming the gift giver as well. Um, so at, at any rate, uh, there was an attempt to. Um, uh, you know, to 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 oust Krampus, to uh, to you know, to say he was a communist, because ultimately, in some depictions, he was reading, wearing red, I guess. Uh, but they ordered anyone in a Krampus costume to be arrested on sight. Uh, festive Krampus dances were outlawed, and they even required all Santa Clauses as well to be licensed by the state and monitored. Man, fascists ruin everything. Yes. Now. Um, uh, in modern times, of course, there have also been concerns about the, the potential trauma of subjecting children to the idea of Krampus or certainly the reality of frightening um, grown people in Krampus costumes parading through the, the street. According to a 2006 report from Reuters, concerned parents and one-child psychologists spoke out against the demon's violent influence as well as so-called childhood Krampus trauma, uh, of which there are you know, only a, a few cases, but uh, at any rate, enough for for some uh, individuals to uh, to want to sound the alarm, and uh, uh, you know what what uh, made the situation particularly interesting was that while Santa ended up being banned from visiting kindergartens in Vienna at the time, Krampus apparently still had access to the children, <laughs> and so there was a certain amount of outrage over that. Well, you know, so I'm of two minds about this. Of course, I love Krampus. I love the the demons and the monsters and all that. that that's sort of my personal jam. But I also I'm very naturally uh, disposed against terrorizing children with supernatural threats. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, I, I would I would propose making Krampus more of a Halloween-style thing. What, what vampires and goblins are to Halloween, Krampus could be to the Christmas season. You know, n- not something that you are taught is literally an existent threat that will hurt you, but just kind of like a, a, a fun trapping of the season. Ah, you know, and this week, kind of referring back to our episode on cuteness and monsters, right? Mm-hmm. Ultimately, if you want to declaw, uh, the monster, uh, if you want to declaw the Krampus, what you need to do is make him funny and or cute, especially cute. The cuter Krampus becomes, the you know, the less terrifying he is. But then how will we get the children to behave? <laughs> 
Um, and that, now I mentioned earlier about how you know the tradition of of, of Krampus has spread over uh, the world, and uh, and as such, you'll see some Krampus parades where there's more of a Hollywood and horror film culture reflected. Mm. Uh, certainly, if you just start looking at Krampus images online, some of them are going to look more like demon costumes that you might buy at a you know Halloween superstore, mm. and then you're going to see things that are that are far more traditional looking. Um, and uh, I was looking at one particular uh, article. This is a New York Times article t- titled, He Sees You When You're Sleeping and Gives You Nightmares by <laughs> Melissa Eddy. Uh, this is um, uh, about uh, the celebration of Krampus in Munich. And in this article, I point out that uh, that uh, in, in this particular Munich uh, Krampus parade, they only allow really traditional Krampuses. So this means wooden masks, horns, uh, goat and sheep pelts, uh, bells and switches. Um, and uh, she writes that uh, local Krampus clubs there will spend uh, between uh, 1,800 and uh, 2,500 euros, upwards of $3,000 each year on masks and costumes made from local materials. How do you join a Krampus club? Is that very exclusive? Um, I get the impression it's kind of like joining a a crew with a K uh, down in New Orleans, you know, for okay. the various uh, parades. You know, uh-huh. it's kind of like you have clubs that okay. get together and put put together, uh, you know, these these particular uh, uh, costumes and uh, performances. It's not like a horned beast country club. It's not where Krampus is gathered to use the pool and play tennis. <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, but she points out the master are in this case carved from lime, Swiss pine, or alder wood, and the skins are going to be sheep or goats. Quote, although no one turns away a Krampus wearing wild boar, <laughs> which is nice. <laughs> and so uh, 400 Krampus is strong. They take to the streets, uh, but there are rules. No drinking and, again, no actual hitting the children. Okay. But uh, Krampus traditions are going to vary as well. Uh, Al uh, Reidenauer pointed out on Atlas Obscura back in 2013 that it's it's not what Krampus looks like so much as what he does or threatens to do that matters. For instance, in Tyrol, uh, the Krampus tradition there is that Krampus is essentially wearing this big suit of straw. So the Krampuses look kind of like a hay bale mm-hmm. uh, with uh, you know beast uh, legs, arms, and head. And, um, and and that's just going to be the, the way that Krampus is depicted uh, in that particular area. And then you can, you know, travel over, for instance, there's a, a part of Bavaria where they don't even have Krampus. Instead, it's uh, uh, Butenmanden, <laughs> uh, which is like a Krampus figure. Uh, so uh, um, the, the author here, that Alice Obscura piece says, quote, like the Tooth Fairy, he had a definite function, but no definite form, which mm. I think is a nice way of putting it. Now, another thing that uh, Ridenauer points out is that Krampus traditions were ultimately, you know, traditionally a thing of the country. They spread slowly and then eventually made their way to the cities where illustrators uh, there might have never heard of such traditions before. So in depicting them, they too might have had to to rely on other demonic motifs, such as devil motifs that were already um, prevalent. Uh, in, in religious iconography, mm-hmm. as well as pan and satyr motifs uh, from uh, art culture, so uh, this would, and then I would imagine that uh, that this would end up influencing the, the traditions to some extent as well. Right. So again, it, it ultimately the the exact appearance of the creature uh, is going to vary, but it's the the intent that is that is almost pure and its chaotic menace. I wonder what exactly it was that caused the sudden international surge in Krampus interest a few years ago. 
Well, there's uh, there's one possible answer to that. Uh, I was reading an article in the Chicago Tribune uh, from from this year by Rick Kogan, and he points out that the U.S. explosion of Krampus might in part be due to the 2004 publication of The Devil in Design, The Krampus Postcards by Mont Beauchamp, an award-winning Chicago art director and graphic designer. So the idea here is like this book came out, these images started circulating around, um, the images so ended up being licensed in some cases, or at least they were licensing requests, and this kind of sets off the online fascination with Krampus and these Krampus images. You know, suddenly here's this this new dark spin on the holidays. Mm-hmm. It starts appearing in television shows. Uh, uh, what Venture Brothers, I think, was one of the first things, uh, first shows in which I saw a depiction of Krampus. But I understand he's shown up on like Supernatural was another one, huh. um, and then eventually had his own horror movie. I think that was in the last couple of years. That was that. Oh yeah, so my dad's a big fan of it. Yeah. <laughs> this is like the that was probably the peak Krampus year. I uh, think so. Yeah. What would be like 2015 or something? Yeah. And of course, you know, Krampus parades can now be found throughout the United States. There's one every year uh, right here in Atlanta that's uh, also, it's sort of a more of a pub crawl, if I remember correctly, unless it's changed, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, like a a pure parade, like an actual license parade. But then, uh, unsurprisingly, you'll find parade crews in New Orleans uh, that, that put on a Krampus parade every year through the streets, and then they finish up at a German restaurant. Uh, mm-hmm. There in uh, uh, in New Orleans. Okay, you Hollywood development people, I've got an idea. I'm gonna pitch it to you right now. Okay, it's Miracle on 34th Street, but with Krampus instead of Santa Claus, right? <laughs> so a little girl befriends a goat man who thinks he who says he's the real Krampus, and you don't know the whole movie. Maybe, is he the real Krampus, or is he just a regular goat man who thinks he's Krampus? <laughs> I don't know. I think. I mean, that's that's the thing. The Miracle on 34th Street is a a story about Santa and a story about about letters and language, right? Uh-huh. Uh, and Krampus is basically unlanguaged. Like there, there are no words with Krampus. There are no there are no prayers. There are no letters to Krampus. It's just the unspoken implication: get in the basket, right? <laughs> Yeah, he is just just uh, just pure menace. Like, He's like Jason. Yeah, Jason yeah. Voorhees. Yeah, doesn't need to speak. You just you his intentions are clear. Well, it, it goes back to the, the Lion Man. It goes back to the basic hybridity of monsters. Monsters don't have to say anything because monsters are the message. Right, their form speaks for them. Exactly. So yeah, Krampus doesn't have to say a thing. Krampus is the message. All right, well, for the rest of the episode, we're going to be exploring the, the biology and the psychology of, of Krampusnacht. But uh, before we do that, we probably need to take a break, right? Yes. So we will be right back with more. All right, we're back. So uh, I admit that was kind of a, an extended ramble in the first part of the episode, but hopefully we were able to get across some of the basic uh, points of the of Krampus traditions. But it can be kind of difficult because, again, it's, it varies from place to place, from time to time. Uh, Krampus is pure in his intent and his just physical message, but everything else is kind of up for grabs. You know, I think it's time to play one of our favorite games on the show, which is let's take this monster in a box biologically literal way. (laughs) 
Yes, uh, which is it's actually kind of difficult to again to do with Krampus because it, it, the actual interpretation of him changes so much. But uh, I will start by mentioning like two literary worlds uh, that come to mind that provide fun parallels to the Krampus idea. Mm-hmm. So one is a, a book by Michael Crichton, uh, the book uh, Eaters of the Dead. Uh, have you read this? I actually haven't. I, I went through a strong Michael Crichton phase when I was younger, uh, but never got to this one. I was in all the techno thrillers, uh, not this one. The, yeah, this one is the the odd non-techno thriller, uh, but it's really good. It's essentially a, a spin on Beowulf. Mm-hmm. Instead of Grindel, the singular monster, you have the, a people known as the Windle, uh, who are possible Neanderthal descendants who periodically descend from the mountain to raid Viking settlements. Uh, so, um, you know, uh, the, the clear inspiration for this, again, being Grindel, who comes down from the wilds in Beowulf to assault the Mead Hall. Mm-hmm. Um, another uh, literary uh, parallel that comes to mind, the White Walkers in George R. R. Martin's Song of Ice and Fire mm-hmm. books, particularly uh, the situation with Craster of Craster's Keep, who sacrifices his male children to the White Walkers in order to sort of protect himself to maintain like this weird alliance with the forces of of wilderness and cold yeah. and death yeah yeah these uh the, these demonic entities who live out in the in the freezing woods and they they uh that and they represent a threat to human children. Right. So playing with these uh, extrapolations of monsters from the winter wild, uh, we might arrive at a view of Krampus as a, as, a, as a people who come down from the mountains to raid the civilizations of man, but who might be bought off through an offering of our worst human children, <laughs> which they presumably eat or, yeah, or maybe put to work in the, the coal mines. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as I can tell, this would be a, you know a, a, a pretty unique arrangement. Uh, in part because outside of our myths and fictions, there are no beast men. Uh, there are no inhuman others to deal with in this manner. Uh, though tantalizingly enough, we are dealing with Europe here, uh, a place where humans and, any, and Neanderthals uh, seem to have coexisted for uh, a number of years. Um, and and uh, I, I, I was looking around. I was wondering, like, surely somebody has. Uh, has, has written about the possibility of Krampus having something to do with Neanderthals, uh, but but nobody else has made that uh, uh, gone out on that 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 limb. That's just me on that limb. But uh, at any rate, as we discussed in our recent cannibalism episode, there there is clear evidence that both Neanderthals and prehistoric humans engaged in cannibalism, but there's nothing solid to suggest that they really ate each other. Though child sacrifice itself can be found throughout cultures of the ancient Near East, pre-Columbian Americas, pre-modern Europe, parts of Africa, etc. So, so, you know, this is just me spitballing here, but but I don't don't think there's anything unbelievable about the idea of humans offering up their worst children to a species of mountain creatures um, as the cold demands of winter set in. Okay. In fact, um, uh, you know, when you think about it, one of the predecessors to Christmas was uh, uh, Roman uh, Saturnalia, which involved uh, a great deal of public ruckus and sacrifices, though apparently not of the human variety. Mm -hmm. Or so we're told. Yes. Now, as far as thinking about Krampus creatures biologically, I mean, we, we simply, you know, we could imagine them as a cold weather adapted to hominid species, uh, you know, what with all the fur. And, and again, it is interesting to think about the fact that Neanderthals may have been essentially that, a species adapted to cold, the cold weather of the Ice Ages, though interpretations vary on that as well. For instance, there's even one theory that states that Neanderthals might actually have been killed out by a cold, dry spell spanning centuries 
during the period of their decline. Mm-hmm. But uh, also, when we think about the, 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 the fur and the horns of the Krampus, we can interpret that as clothing and ritual garb, just like uh, human beings might wear and, and certainly do wear when they dress up as Krampus in the streets. Uh, but we could also imagine some horned humanoid as well. We have countless examples of such creatures and beings and global myths. And even cases of humans in the past with horn-like growths, but nothing on the level of a horned biped mammalian species. Now, as for that tongue, uh, I'm always in- intrigued by especially some of these Krampus illustrations in which the tongue is actually wrapping around a screaming uh, child. Uh, the closest analog you can really find in nature is probably the 18 to 20 inch or 45 to 50 cent- uh, centimeter prehensile giraffe tongue. That's a good tongue. Yeah, Kate, if you certainly if you've gotten to see a, a giraffe at the zoo, you've or, or, or certainly in the wild, if you've uh, been so lucky, uh, then hopefully you've, you've you've seen the way that tongue can wrap itself around uh, vegetation and then you know pull it free. It's like a snake coming out of the mouth. Yeah, so that would be a possibility for our imagined Krampus creature. But then that would, again, come to down to what's the function of this tongue? Does that mean that Krampus actually depends you know, primarily on vegetation? And why would he have the tongue and hands as well? Like That seems like uh, uh, the physical form would be over-investing in vegetation manipulation. Mm. Unless he has to eat all those leaves while scooping up screaming children, in which case, I don't know. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's interesting. Or another way you could look at it is uh, what if uh, Krampus is not, in fact, bipedal? Uh, Krampus could be a four-legged critter, right? Oh, yeah. Perhaps perhaps is mostly uh, going about on four legs but r- rises up on two legs. When, when wanting to display a threat, right? Yeah. To make himself look bigger. Right, right. Um However, I do have to say, though, the idea of of Krampus being a vegetarian, of course, that that would play in well with what we know of other like bovine creatures and certainly uh, giraffe and and, uh, related creatures like these are these are herbivores. So primarily. So, so, you know, those would be the main parallels to some sort of a goat man, I imagine. But then again, if you go back in the fossil record, you'll you'll find things like Andrew Sarkis, which some paleontologists interpret as a cloven hoofed carnivore. So. Uh, you know, I think there's hope uh, there that you could have you could th- you could theoretically have some sort of a, a hoofed goat creature that feasts on flesh. Nice. Well, there's already that uh, stereotype that goats will eat anything, right? Oh you, yeah. You feed them a tin can and and they'll eat it. I don't know to what extent that's true. Um, I'm sure you shouldn't do you, that. Yeah, I, certainly you should not. But uh, but you know, if you're at a like a petting zoo, certainly goats are curious and they will they'll nibble on a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be kind of a squirrel situation here, a thing yeah. that uh, that primarily eats uh, vegetation, but. Uh, you know, who knows what they'll dip into given the opportunity. So to come back to the question, could Krampus exist? Yeah, I think theoretically. <laughs> like there's nothing, you know, completely unrealistic about the idea. So mm-hmm. um, you're sort of getting into like the plausibility of Sasquatch kind yeah. of things. Yeah. Uh, like uh, large, hairy, bipedal creatures uh, that, you know, may dwell outside the bounds of human civilization. Uh, now, here's an interesting question, though. Which is more real? Krampus, who no one is claiming to have seen in the wilds, uh-huh. uh, or Sasquatch, uh, in, in, in which people do make that claim and, and do 
devote their lives to the idea that it really exists. Like one is extremely real in the in the imagination and in, in human traditions, and the other is it has this cryptozoological standing for the most part, with with some uh, creep into uh, you know the cultural area as well. Well, obviously, I mean, I, I'm pretty skeptical of uh, of both, but I mean, if you had to rule one as more plausible than the other, obviously it would be it would be the Squatch, right? Yeah, because the, the Squatch is oriented toward plausibility, and not to read too much into people's intentions, but you all almost get the sense that some of the reports are kind of crafted in order to make it seem like a more biologically plausible thing. Right. Uh, and not just like a, a fantasy monster that right. I saw in the woods. Yeah, and then ultimately, yeah, ultimately Krampus is a celebration of a fantasy monster mm-hmm. uh, that is a part of, of holiday traditions. You know, the fantasy monsters are better. <laughs> they carry baskets and Sasquatch does not. That's right, yeah. So all this talk of Krampus has got me wondering. Uh, so you got a St. Nicholas on one hand, the big bag full of toys for all the good boys and girls. And then you got Krampus, who's got the whip or the switch, the basket to carry the bad children off somewhere wretched. I was wondering which idea is actually more effective at motivating good behavior. Uh, and I want to be clear, we're certainly not encouraging you to terrorize your children with threats of monsters and other supernatural punishments. Uh, but I am curious, just in the abstract, which is more motivating to, to people in general and to children? The promise of rewards like toys or the threat of punishment? Is it toys or horns? Yeah, this is a, this is one of those big questions that I think every parent struggles with. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, trying to figure out, you know, to what extent should we keep it positive, positive reinforcement, then uh, to what extent do you actually dip into the negative? Uh, and and you know, ultimately, you generally don't want to dip into the negative mm-hmm. reinforcement. You don't. We certainly don't want to invent imaginary horrors uh, to scare children. But on the other hand, uh, it comes back to the reality of, of Jenny Greenteeth, that there mm-hmm. are real pressing threats to a child's life in their immediate vicinity, and you want to get the message across. Uh, you know, you, you don't want to think about uh, your, your child uh, getting hit by a car, mm-hmm. for instance, by wandering into the street. But you, you, want to, you want to drive home the message that this could happen, and so you should certainly not do this thing. Well, right. I mean, it's a totally different question, I think, once you get into the area of, like, clear life-threatening uh, types of things. I mean, I think the things people deal with on a more often day-to-day basis are just, like, how do you regulate behavior? How do you get the child to, to not, you know, behave in a, like, obnoxious self way right. uh, toward other children, toward teachers and parents and all that. So I'm asking the question in a general way here. We'll try to give a general answer if I can, but obviously this is going to depend on a lot of individual circumstances, both of the people being motivated, the situation they're in, the types of rewards and punishments on offer. And given that reality, you probably won't be surprised to find that the evidence here is somewhat mixed and confusing about whether rewards or punishments are more effective. It, it depends a lot, but I'll try to flesh it out okay. a little bit. So uh, one thing that's important to remember is the difference between positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, and punishment, which are three distinct categories in psychology, though the terms negative reinforcement and punishment are sometimes used interchangeably. They, they do have subtle differences. So positive reinforcement is when an action is encouraged with a reward. So imagine you're designing a car mm-hmm. that encourages people to wear their seatbelts. For positive reinforcement, Every time you put on your seatbelt, maybe the car gives you a candy or it <laughs> displays a little thing that says, good job. 
for negative reinforcement, you have to imagine that the car does what many cars actually already do. It makes an annoying sound or keeps beeping until you put your seatbelt on. So for negative reinforcement, what this actually means is there's an existing negative stimulus, which is the sound, the negative reinforcer, and you can only make the negative reinforcer go away by doing the desired action of putting on the seatbelt. Punishment is similar but slightly different. Instead of presenting a bad effect and then removing it when you do something good, it threatens you with subsequent bad effects if you do something bad. So punishment would be more like your car automatically writing you a ticket every time you drive somewhere without your seatbelt. And so negative reinforcement is something that's already painful or unwanted and you have to do something right to make it stop. Punishment is something bad that will happen to you if you do something wrong. And then even within that, I think technically there's both like positive punishment and negative punishment. Positive punishment would be doing something you don't like, like the car shocking you after you drive somewhere with uh, without a seatbelt. Negative punishment would involve like taking away a benefit as a punishment. So like if the car automatically disabled its air conditioning after you drove without your seatbelt. So which one of these is Krampus? Uh, Krampus kind of shows the way that some of the categories do have some overlap. They kind of bleed together. I suppose it is in, in one sense a threat of positive punishment, like this monster will be coming to possibly whip you, Uh, but it's also a bit of negative reinforcement maybe because like maybe helping mom and dad do the chores could do something to alleviate the negative reinforcer, which is the nagging fear of Krampus that haunts your mind. Yeah, I think that's that's fair. Uh, uh, Again, there there is a an amorphous aspect to Krampus, so it, it would be it would be too much to expect him to fit firmly in any kind of category. Well, but it's not just Krampus. Also, it's like tons of things. Like it's difficult to know exactly like where they fit on the scale because yeah. you can frame them in different ways. Like you can frame doing the exact same thing as like an inhibition or a positive behavior. Like, are you remembering to turn the lights off when you leave the room, a positive behavior, or are you not leaving the lights on when you leave the room? I mean, Mm. it's sort of like hard to tell which is which in some cases. Um, but so, uh, so to look at some studies, there was one study from the 1970s I came across by Arthur F. Uh, Constantini and Kenneth Hoving called The Effectiveness of Reward and Punishment Contingencies on Response Inhibition. And this was in the Journal of Child Psychology, 1973. And so this looked at the relative strength of rewards and punishments in, in motivating behavior. It, it involved training two groups of 40 kindergartners and 40 second graders in something called response inhibition training. This is training that teaches children to suppress actions that are inappropriate for the context. Their quote from the paper is, this is uh, the tendency to inhibit irrelevant acts and to select appropriate ones. So basically, it's self-control. Like in a laboratory context, uh, this kind of training might take the form of anything from the marshmallow test, like getting kids to resist eating a treat on the promise that a better treat is coming later, to some Something called the Stroop test, which involves showing people the name of a color printed in a different color, and then they have to say the color that the word is printed in. Mm. So, for example, you'd see the word red printed in green, and you would have to say green instead of red. And th- this is uh, taken as a suppressing activity, but it re- because it requires the suppression of the dominant response behavior, which is to simply read the word you're seeing. 
but there, there are all kinds of analogies for response inhibition training in the behavioral education of children. If you're trying to train a child not to grab things out of other people's hands or not to whine when they want something, that's a form of response inhibition training. Anyway, the, the short version is that this study found that for this particular type of training, children at both age groups learned the response inhibition on the given task more efficiently when they were threatened with punishment than when they were promised rewards. Though I should note, because it's probably relevant, what the punishments and rewards consisted of. Basically, children were shown an assortment of toys and told that their performance on these training tasks would determine a payout of marbles, which they could then use to purchase the toys that they had been shown. So in the reward condition, good performance on the task was rewarded with the accumulation of marbles. You do good and you get more marbles. In the punishment condition, you had some marbles and bad performance on the task was punished with the removal of marbles awarded at the beginning. So basically the rewards and the punishments here both had to do with toy buying power. And granted, toy buying power is an immensely powerful force in the child's mind. Oh, I remember it. I remember that power. Uh, and, and so the authors write, quote, the motivational effect of losing marbles is apparently greater than receiving them, even when the actual number retained by or given to the subjects is the same under both conditions. Uh, now, note here that the punishment, even though it is incredibly motivating to have toy buying power, the punishment here is not an intrinsically painful effect, but rather the withdrawal of previously awarded positive reinforcers. And this probably has very important differences from a demon with a whip. Yeah, this this would have more just in common with sort of the, the Krampus-free uh, idea that Santa will either bring you the toys you want or less toys or no toys based on your behavior. Exactly. Uh, so this is just one study from the 70s, and I was reading more recent opinions of scholars and child psychologists, and the picture continues to get more complicated from there. So uh, another thing I was looking at was a column in Psychology Today by a pretty well-known American child psychologist named Jay Belsky, uh, who had actually been the subject of some kind of controversy after he published research that seemed to show some mildly negative behavioral outcomes for children who had spent a lot of time in daycare. I, I don't know enough about him or his research to have an opinion on that issue, but I thought I should flag it since I saw something about it. But anyway, Belsky argues here that rewards are generally more effective than punishment at teaching good behavior, especially for young children. Uh, and specifically, he gives the example of rewarding good behavior, but simply ignoring bad behavior. Uh, and he writes that, uh, you know, a lot of parents are, are kind of intuitively averse to this like they would think you know why would ignoring bad behavior be better than meeting out punishment when a child does wrong mm -hmm. and uh, Belsky calls attention to the work of a group of Dutch neuroscientists who studied the effects of simple rewards and punishments and these are about as mild as you can get for rewards and punishments basically it was children ages 8 to 9 and children ages 11 to 12 and they were trained to do a computer task in which they had to discover and follow some rules and the inferring and following of the rules could be reinforced either by rewards which would consist of a check mark when they got the right answer or punishments a big x when they got the wrong answer and the study found that the younger children improved more when the feedback was positive whereas the older children improved more when the feedback was negative Young adults 18 to 25 also responded more to negative feedback in a similar test. 
And the neuroscientists who carried out this research had the children undergo brain scans while lear- uh, while learning through these tasks. And the brain imaging work showed differences between the brains of the younger children and the older children while doing the computer task. The areas of the cerebral cortex associated with cognitive control, which is related to the, the self-control and the response inhibition we were just talking about, in these areas – Older children showed stronger activation in response to negative feedback, and younger children showed stronger activation in response to positive feedback. So what could fully account for the difference here? Like, why would younger children learn faster from minor rewards and older children and young adults learn faster from minor punishments? Uh, Belsky offers an explanation that's in line with the authors of the study, quote, Information which stipulates that you did something wrong is more complicated than information stipulating that you did something well. So younger children may simply have an easier time processing simpler, positive, rewarding information than negative feedback. As the authors noted, learning from mistakes is more complex than carrying on in the same way as before. You have to ask yourself precisely what went wrong and how it was possible. That is, it takes more analysis to figure out that what was done is mistaken than that it is correct. So if you think about it, I think that makes sense. Positive reinforcements and rewards are actually often so simple as to be nearly mechanical. Like whatever you just did, that was good. Keep doing that. Do more of it. Punishments let you know that you're screwing up, but they don't necessarily tell you what you should be doing instead. They don't necessarily model a positive behavior. So they can be confusing, frustrating, demotivating. Uh, And so it seems that for pre-adolescent children, modeling and rewarding positive behavior is probably more effective than punishing bad behavior since it's easier for them to understand and repeat. So, of course, uh, an an important note of difference here, the the difference between the effects of like simple, mild rewards and punishments that you get in real time during an experiment versus the effects of the promise of rewards and the threat of like terrifying punishments extended far into the future. Like, obviously, it's one thing to test the difference between more toys and less toys right now or checks and X's right now versus the, you know, the difference between awesome toys and monstrous doom many months down the road. And I, I wasn't able to come across anything that was able to uh, really model like the, the threats of punishment and promises of rewards exactly as they're presented to children around these kind of Christmas ideas. But I have to imagine the like time delay plays a big role there, right? You've got to yeah. get very different effects when you're talking about rewards and punishments that are long off in the future versus immediately apparent. Yeah, I mean, especially when you're talking about Christmas, because we, we all have, I think we've all had that experience. When you're, when you're an adult, December just flies by like any month. But when, mm-hmm. you're, when you're a child, um, you know, the, the holiday time passes in an entirely different way. It, uh, you know, it, the, the span of time between, uh, between December 1st and December 24th it seems immense. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and, certain, and, and yet at the, the same time, like are you going to invoke uh, Santa Claus in uh, April? Or in July, you know, like that's it's so far away that it it seems like it would lose its impact, you know? Yeah. Well, that's a good question. What what time of year does Santa Claus start to matter? Yeah. Or, or for instance, the elf on the shelf, uh, you know, another Uh sort of aspect of this. uh, you know, panopticon uh, notion of uh, of Santa watching you at all times, or possibly watching you at all times. You don't know. You don't know what's going on in the eye of the panopticon. 
the panopticon, uh, for anyone who's not familiar with that term, like this refers back to a basic design for a prison mm-hmm. in which uh, you have a large cylindrical space with the uh, cells of the prison lining the inside walls. And at the center of this vast cylinder, there's a single guard tower. And there's really only like, you know, one or two guards in there, but you can't see where they're looking. They could be looking into your cell. All cells are visible to the the Panopticon's central tower. Um, You just don't know who they're looking at right now, and it may well be you. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I certainly uh, I bristle at the idea of, of enforcing the panopticons, especially supernaturally on children. Uh, but then at the same time, I think, well, that's not unusual historically, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it just it seems to be the norm that children are generally taught about Santa Claus or Elf on the Shelf or about, you know, just supernatural deities yeah. or anything like that that's always watching what they do. Uh, so n- not to suggest that because it's been normal historically, it's okay. But yeah, that's got to be like, I mean, I was like that when I was a kid. I remember thinking that, yeah, they're seeing everything. Yeah. And if you believe it all, it, there's a crowded room full of folks watching everything you do. Every every vile deed uh, you uh, perpetrate as a child, uh, Santa Claus is there, Krampus, an elf, um, God, Jesus, uh, your uh, the spirits of your uh, you know elders, mm-hmm. uh, they're all there, just waiting for you to slip up. Yeah. Anyway, uh, coming back to the research I was just talking about, so th- we were talking about the possible reasons why rewards could be more salient for young children, and it's because in some cases, it's a reward is an easier type of reinforcement to process mentally and understand that punishments can be confusing. It's harder to establish exactly the link between what you did wrong, the punishment, and what you should be doing instead. Uh, but th- the other question would be the other side of the coin. What's going on in adults that appears to, at least in many cases, make punishments more powerful than rewards for them? Uh, this doesn't really explain it, but it does seem in keeping with a widely observed principle in cognitive psychology known as loss aversion, which is this bias where, simply put, on average, people are much more strongly motivated to avoid losses than they are to acquire equivalent gains. So what this means is that you got a bunch of experiments showing people would work harder, would do more to avoid losing $10 they already have than they would to acquire $10 they don't have yet. So monetarily, the loss in the it's exactly equivalent, mm-hmm. but it's just the question of like it feels so much worse to lose something you have than to not get something you could get. Yeah, it's kind of uh, I've become accustomed to a certain lifestyle mentality, <laughs> right? Uh, and it's there in all kinds of fiction, right? You know, like why is why are the tragedies always about kings and stuff, uh, about people in, in great exalted places of power? It's like there's this idea that uh, that being reduced from a from a high starting point is so much more awful and tragic than having b- things happen to you if you were already suffering. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, and certainly for a, a child, you know, when, when you get into the like the material possession of toys, like mm-hmm. to to take the toy away is it's a, it's it's like almost a violent act. Mm-hmm. You know, you you've taken away um, you know part of their body almost. Um, there was there was recently a, a time where my wife took. Uh, 
uh, our son to um, like a thrift store and there was a, a, a stuffed animal he really wanted and he um, he remarked uh, uh, to my wife he said he said this uh, he says my, my whole body wants this toy you know <laughs> which I thought was great because that really does sum up just how um, important uh, these these physical toys are to us as children like our whole body wants them and we will be incomplete if we do not have it and likewise if it is taken away from us mm-hmm. you are taking Taking away a part of them. I don't know if this is the case, but I would suspect it's a lot harder to deny a, a toy to a child once the child has already had it in their hands. Mm-hmm. Like it's there's going to be way more grief about like you can't have a toy that they've already picked up and handled oh, versus yeah. one that's still on the shelf. Yeah, that's always the worst when uh, you're in like a Barnes and Noble or something, you know, mm-hmm. and then you see that uh, your child is carrying something from uh, with them now from another aisle. Like they've already like the toy has imprinted on them. <laughs> it's going to be that much harder and that much tr- more, more tragic to extract from the store without a purchase. It's the pain. I I feel it. All right. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. All right. We're back. So a couple more studies I was reading about rewards and punishment and and their variable effects. Uh, So one was published in Cognition in 2015 by uh, Jan Kubanek, Lawrence Snyder, and Richard Abrams. And I was reading a write-up of this uh, in the the WashU School of Medicine news site. Um, so th- this was a study dealing with the relative effects of rewards versus punishments on a difficult task where subjects had to count numbers of like binaural clicks that they were hearing in headphones or uh, count numbers of localized flashes of light they saw. And it was a difficult test. And then they were given randomized payouts of different value tokens between 5 and 25 cents. And the tokens were awarded for correct answers or taken away for incorrect answers. And so subjects who were rewarded tended to repeat their previous answer. That's not surprising because like, you know, when you get a reward, you, you the simplest thing to do is just do what you did before. Uh, meanwhile, subjects who were punished strongly avoided repeating their previous answers. And the magnitude of these effects were asymmetrical. This is what they found. They found that losses had two to three times more motivating power than equivalent gains did. Uh, but also effects uh, for the punishment factor were strong no matter no matter the magnitude of the punishment. Even very small punishments deducting five cents were strongly motivating to produce changes in behavior. And uh, so one of the authors, uh, Jen Kubanek, said uh, to this news site, quote, Regarding teaching strategies, our study suggests that negative feedback may be more effective than positive feedback at modifying behavior. Our study showed that such feedback does not have to be harsh since it appears that we tend to react in the same manner to any amount of negative feedback. From an evolutionary perspective, people tend to avoid punishments or dangerous situations. Rewards, on the other hand, have less of a life-threatening impact. Uh, so, okay, so that's one thing here. But then uh, a little bit on the other hand, I was reading a 2017 article in the Harvard Business Review by a cognitive neuroscientist at uh, University College London named Tali Chirot. And contrary to what we were just learning about uh, punishments being more motivating than rewards in adults, Chirot begins the article by drawing attention to a 2011 study carried out at New York's, uh, at a New York State hospital published in the journal Clinical and Infectious Diseases by Donna Armelino et al. And the basic gist is like this. So you got healthcare workers and they are supposed to sanitize their hands whenever they enter and exit a patient's room. Uh, healthcare workers are constantly reminded of this 
this fact and of how important the practice is for stopping the spread of potentially deadly infectious disease. And yet, when this hospital uh, installed cameras at hand hygiene stations to monitor the healthcare worker behaviors, they discovered a dismal compliance rate. Only about 10% of medical staff sanitized their hands upon entering and exiting patient rooms, even though they knew the cameras were present. Then the hospital introduced a feedback mechanism to see if this would improve the hygiene. Uh, it was a simple electronic board on the wall, which gave positive messages like good job to workers who fully sanitized their hands when they were supposed to. And the rates of hand sanitization rocketed up from about 10% to about 90%. (laughs) And then these results were replicated at another hospital. So the question is, why? Like, why would this simple, trivial reward be more powerful as a motivator than the threat of potentially spreading infectious disease, which could literally kill people. And Shiro's got a very interesting answer here. Uh, the, the suggestion is that this is actually consistent with a large body of research in psychology and neuroscience that shows that there's a difference based on whether you're trying to get people to do something, to perform an action, or trying to prevent them from performing an action. Uh, And Shiro says that the evidence indicates that threats of punishment are more effective when trying to keep people from doing bad things. Meanwhile, rewards, even minor positive reinforcements, are more effective if you're trying to get people to actively do something, if you're trying to motivate an action rather than prohibit it. So by this token, the threat of spreading infectious disease might be more effective at keeping people out of a restricted pathology lab. So, you know, the threat motivates you to stay out, whereas the smiley face and the good job message are more effective at motivating people to perform a simple positive action over and over, like using the hand sanitizer. And uh, this was interesting. Shiro thinks this is consistent with the evolutionary context in which motivation and inhibition arose. So like normally if you think about for an animal to get a reward, usually it needs to do something to go foraging for food, to put in the effort to woo a mate or whatever. But in order to avoid danger, most of the time it needs to not do something like don't go in the deep water, don't go off on your own, don't eat this plant, that Mm. kind of thing. And the author gives the example that this is why one of the most primal reactions animals have to a threatening stimulus is to freeze when there's a threat and you don't fully understand it yet. You're still processing what the threat is. The the instinctual reaction is don't do anything. Just freeze. And I, I think that's an interesting explanation for what might be going on there. Uh, but they also write that this might be part of the explanation. It's probably not the full story because there are probably also social incentives for things like, you know, showing something on a board in a hospital where everybody can see it, right? Uh, but Shiro and colleagues who, uh, also conducted research showing a similar dynamic where uh, the short version is volunteers were faster to press a button when they would get a dollar than they were to press a button to avoid losing a dollar. So the reward motivates the action. But they were better at refraining from pressing a button when doing so would prevent them from losing a dollar than it would uh, result in them gaining a dollar. So the threat of punishment motivated inhibition. 
Uh, and another interesting finding was uh, they write that people often interpret positive information like the promise of rewards as relevant to them personally while interpreting negative information like the threat of punishments as not applying to them personally mm. as being you know, maybe just something about other people. That's, that ha- the Krampus happens to bad kids. Right, exactly. But Shiro concludes by saying it's not very effective to try to scare people into action, to make people actively do good things as opposed to refraining from bad things. Rewards, even small rewards, are usually more powerful than threats of punishment. And yet our basic Santa story is totally screwed up because the the whole thing is Santa's watching and there are all these things you better not do uh-huh. in order to get the reward. It's not it's not the, 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 the positive reward is not attached to any kind of positive action usually. Well, I mean, for I think for a lot of kids, maybe it's like, you know, you do your chores, you help out around yeah. the house, you share, you do that kind of thing, right? Yeah, I guess so. But it, it seems like the, like the basic... A Christmas Carol, Ebenezer Scrooge kind of messaging towards adults mm-hmm. that the holidays are a time when you should make, you should act, you should do things to right. help people, give to charity, you know, yeah, yeah that, kind that of sort thing. of thing. Like, that's more about the the adult Christmas messaging as opposed to the childhood Christmas messaging, which is more like just don't be bad, <laughs> which is kind of a, a low threshold to set, right? Uh-huh. Um, Maybe it should be more along the lines of go out and do good things. Uh, you know, ask about ask about helping uh, out in the house more. Mm-hmm. Uh, ask your your parents about doing things in your community. That sort of thing. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I think one thing that comes up here is that there a, a lot of the way that rewards and punishments work, or even not even rewards and punishments, maybe things more just like motivation work uh, for child behavior. Can it can be sensitive to how you frame the issue for the child, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, just like putting the exact same behavior in a different context, it seems like it could sometimes have a pretty strong effect on how that behavior is regulated, right? Like instead of uh, when a child is being selfish or something and won't share their toy, like you could yell at them and say they're being bad and, you know, they need to learn how to share. Or you could say, hey, you know, let's let's practice modeling sharing behavior or something. And, and ultimately you're getting at the same activity but framing it in a very different way. I guess one of the, th- the, the big things too is that certainly you may employ negative or positive reinforcement in a given scenario like that, mm-hmm. um, you know, depending on the situation and your exact parenting style, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But how many people really use the Christmas uh, mythology and Christmas ritual as negative or positive feedback? I don't know. How many do that? I don't know. Like, I mean, in my experience as a former child and current parent, (laughs) I mean, it seems like, like, the gifts are obtained, like everything's set in motion pretty early on. Uh-huh. And it would have to be some really bad, like Krampus-worthy behavior to make the actually say, okay, we're scaling back on the gifts now. This one's going back to the store. They've been too bad. I mean, <laughs> it seems like more a situation where the holiday is set in motion and then you say, oh, by the way, just be a good child right now because we've got a lot on our plate just making it through December. Well, yeah, I mean— <laughs> 
it's so you're you're talking about the reality there that like often even when a child is maybe like threatened with rewards or punishments concerning Christmas, a lot of times there's not necessarily a lot of real causality right, yeah. taking place. But I, I mean, I mean, it could be a situation too where the ritual has lost its potency. Yeah. in modern times, certainly that would that would be in keeping with what our holidays have become. Totally, and you know, the, there there are other things too that you know might make you think twice, even about the. Even if you're saying, okay, well, I'm I'm not going the punishment route. I wouldn't threaten the child with uh, with with Krampus or whatever. Which, okay, good on you. Uh, but that might make you think twice, even with the reward framing. Because I, I was reading a, an article in the New York Times from 2018 by a therapist named Heather Turgeon, who uh, pointed out some things I'd never read about before. Uh, uh, she just mentioned some possible downsides of rewards in addition to punishments for controlling child behavior, which are, for example, some studies find. Um, that the introduction of a reward structure can sometimes decrease intrinsic motivation for for like good behavior. So like, and I'm not sure how consistently this holds up, but at least in a few experiments, like if a kid likes to draw and then you start paying them to draw, they will naturally start to draw less. <laughs> the same for sharing, right? Introduce a payout scheme for sharing, and sharing decreases under naturalistic conditions. Uh, and uh, the author here writes, quote, this is what psychologists call the over-justification effect. The external reward overshadows the child's internal motivation, which, huh. I mean, that sounds like a really tragic effect if you actually were to bring something like that about. Yeah, right. I mean, you're... You should your your desire to do something should not be destroyed by rewards for doing that thing. Not mm-hmm. until you enter the workforce, anyway. Exactly, isn't that it? I mean, yeah. like that's one of the dangers about you know. I mean, on one hand, it's great to be able to do what you love for a living, mm-hmm. but there's a dark side to it yeah. too, right? You know, if you do what you love for a living, it kind of has it has some power to corrupt what you love. It makes it about money. It makes it like this is what I have to do. Yeah. Ah, uh, now I get to stress out about the thing that you to be my hobby. Yeah. So anyway, I, I would say in the end, rewards and punishments, uh, their effects on us, I think, are very complicated. Uh, I, I hope you have learned something for the, from this, even though I can't clearly say it's just one way or the other. Rewards are better. Punishments are better. But I will say, do not punish your children with threats of demons, no matter what. <laughs> I, I think that is across the board going to be bad. So as with any Krampus ritual, you may well have learned nothing. But hopefully it was at <laughs> least a spectacle. That's uh, at least it, 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 it hopefully entertained you. I hope your, your tongue is lolling violently uh, 30 inches out of your mouth. <laughs> Now, uh, obviously, uh, we would love to hear from folks out there because I know we have we have listeners uh, around the world. Uh, certainly, we pro- we have some, we probably have some listeners in the United States that have participated in some of uh, uh, the the newer Krampus traditions here, and then hopefully we have some listeners who have witnessed or participated in some of the more traditional uh, rites of uh, these Alpine regions that we mentioned. And of course, in general, I think we all have something. But no matter what, if you celebrate any. Thing like uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, Christmas or holiday traditions, or even if you don't, you probably have something to say about negative and positive reinforcement as a child or a or a parent, uh, and we'd love to hear from you about that. 
In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find them. Uh, let's see, what else? Um, yeah, there's a merch store up there. If you want to check out our merch, uh, you know, there are all sorts of uh, year-end uh, sales going on at the moment. Good place to get Christmas gifts. Yeah. Uh, and then in terms of other shows, uh, there's The Second Oil Age for horror and uh, science fiction. All those episodes are out, and you can binge them. And then Invention, our other podcast, the uh, podcast about human techno history. Uh, we've been doing some episodes on toys, classic toys, and where they came from, who invented them. Because certainly, even something like a slinky, uh, that had to be created. That had to emerge from the human mind and and uh, and be brought uh, to, to life through technology. And uh, the story of how that comes together is fascinating. So we hope you check that show out as well. In, in whichever show you're listening to, just make sure that you have subscribed and that you are rating and reviewing it, because that is a great way to help these shows out and ensure that they have more life. Absolutely. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.